Welcome back to the program. Several trends are shaping the world today. One is immigration and migration, the mass movement of peoples from rural areas to urban areas and across borders in search of a better life. Concurrently, globalization and cultural homogenization are confusing the very idea of national identity. As the recently concluded World Cup proved, we're deeply committed to our ethnic and geographic identity, yet at the same time, it's all within the context of an increasing borderless and global world. Inherent in this contradiction lies many issues for multiracial Americans, particularly for Chinese Americans, torn between two models of success. Eric Liu's story sits at the epicenter of these ideas, ideas that form the basis of what we really should be discussing as part of our immigration conversation. Eric Liu is an author, an educator, a civic entrepreneur. He served as a White House speechwriter for Bill Clinton and later as the president's deputy domestic policy advisor. He's a columnist for Time.com and a regular contributor to The Atlantic. It is my pleasure to welcome Eric Liu to the program today to talk about his new book, A Chinaman's Chance, One Family's Journey in the Chinese-American Dream. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you so much for having me great to have you here. When we talk about this experience, your experience as, as a Chinese-American, is this a conversation about ethnicity, or is it about race, or does it matter? Well, it's a little bit of uh, all of the above, and um, you know, I think the Chinese-American experience reveals, uh, in, in many ways, just the larger American challenge that we've had teasing out race, ethnicity, uh, even class. I think when if you to if you were to walk down the street and ask any random person what they thought of the Chinese American experience, I think many people today, to the extent that they think about it at all, think about Chinese Americans through the lens of the, the so-called model minority stereotype. Where, gosh, you know, all Chinese Americans are parented by people like Amy Chua and, <laughs> and end up being valedictorians of things and end up uh, you know being hyper achievers. And uh, boy, they must be doing great. And uh, you know, the, the, there's, of course, uh, a part of the population that uh, somewhat fits that stereotype. Uh, but people don't realize uh, in the first place that today the community is really kind of a barbell-shaped community, that on the one end, yes, you do have people who, um, who, who have been achieving and who had the good fortune to, in many cases, like my parents, emigrate to the United States already with some uh, education and capacity to make their way here. But on the other end, you have hundreds of thousands, uh, nearly half a million uh, Chinese Americans living in poverty, and, and not just kind of n recent migrants, uh, but people sometimes living in multi-generational poverty that really is off the radar screen of the American uh, consciousness about race, class, and identity. And so part of the aim of this book was just to uh, paint a, a clearer picture of what's happening today. And then Jeff, as you say, I mean, I think the the way over uh, history, since the mid-1800s when Chinese Americans first started arriving in um, uh, significant numbers, realizing all the ways in which uh, the experience of people of Chinese descent has put to the test at various uh, moments and in various ways just whether this country actually lives up to its creed, whether it actually means what it says in its founding documents, whether it means what it says um, when it talks about equality. And... Uh, the, the people who are vaguely even a history uh, student of American history will remember the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, uh, which for the next several decades uh, uh, marked a remarkable precedent in the history of our republic, banning an entire group of people from entering our borders on the basis of race. Um, and, of course, that notion of race then was bound up with fears of 
yellow peril and Chinese as disease and contagion-carrying vermin, and, and of course, most fundamentally, Chinese as being competitors to uh, white labor in the right. U.S. So th- these questions are all bound up and always have been. It also does seem to be a zero-sum game, at least in, in the public perception in so many respects, in that, that views change, of course, over time, but there's always one group that there are negative stereotypes about and other groups there are positive stereotypes about, and we don't seem to be very good at keeping a realistic picture of all of it in our heads at the same time. No, you're, you're right, Jeff, and I think that's partly the nature of any kind of complex, multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, um, there are always going to be, particularly in times of anxiety and fear, whether that's driven by economic struggle, as we've been experiencing as a country for the last few years, uh, or also by uh, a sense of international rivalry, where America's primacy is in question, uh, again, as it is today, or, or as it was perhaps in the 80s when people thought Japan was about to be number one, and was going to displace uh, America. In in all these kinds of moments, um, people look for scapegoats. And because we are a society that is multi-ethnic and multi-racial, often those scapegoats uh, are tagged by color, they're tagged by race. And uh, and I think this is, you know, one of the dynamics of our country. But, you know, there's a word that you use, Jeff, that I really want to circle back on, which people overlook. The word is we. You said, we have a hard time doing this. We. And I think the, the timeless American question is, who is us? Mm-hmm. Who do we mean when we say we? And I think for a great part of American history, the we has been implicitly and by default uh, a we of uh, white, often men. Uh, that has been the default setting for Americanness. That has been who has shaped um, our notions of culture and identity and nationhood. And really over the last three, four decades, that we is changing. There is no obvious central uh, omniscient uh, we uh, that describes Americanness. We're in a period of this kind of flux, and, uh, and I think this is exciting. It doesn't have to be scary. It's exciting because, again, the United States is doing what it does best, which is to show the rest of the world the way, how you can hybridize and blend and mix uh, cultures, not only different kinds of white European cultures, as in the quote-unquote old melting pot, but truly cultures from every corner of the planet and creating brand new combinations and memes and bloodlines that the world hadn't seen before. That's our purpose in the world. And this is not a thing to be anxious about and not a thing to uh, look for scapegoats for. It's a thing uh, that says to me, we are finally beginning in full uh, to express the American destiny. How is it different perhaps now for the Chinese-American experience Given the success of China, the way immigration is viewed from there, the way the country is viewed, and the fear that that generates in a very different kind of way, Jeff, you really put your finger on something, you know. And I, I alluded to it when I talked about the the eighties and the Japanophobia that emerged in a lot of quarters of American society. And uh, of course, you know, as an Asian American who's even remotely aware of history. Uh, you have to get a little bit cautious every time an Asian nation rises in might and strength. Uh, and, and when you look at the way that China has risen uh, to be a friend, competitor, rival, you know, it's unclear what China is in relation to the United States today. Um, that, that same lack of clarity reverberates sometimes in a way that uh, my countrymen perceive me and people who look like me. Uh, and sometimes that is... Uh, 
intentional, and oftentimes it is completely unwitting. You have, um, you know, TV pundits, for instance, this fellow named Bob Beckwell, who I just just happened to see a headline about, who uh, was on Fox News and, and talking about China's rise, and uh, and just uttered the statement uh, that uh, Chinamen pose the greatest threat to America right now, and uh, a using that phrase. Uh, um, without any kind of uh, irony or, um, or or recognition that it's a uh, it's a term that's loaded, um, uh, but B uh, not particularly distinguishing between people who are Chinese in China and people of Chinese ethnicity here, uh, and so I think this is a thing that we've got to watch out for. That even as we recognize that, yeah, maybe China is going to propose more challenges to the United States in more arenas, um, that Chinese Americans are Americans, and we need not go through the kinds of mistakes that we went through uh, uh, with the internment of Japanese Americans or the questioning of loyalty um, uh, that makes it so that people with, again, Asian faces are presumed foreign until proven otherwise. That's the default setting we've got to change. And, and of course, it dovetails with sort of the age-old problem of immigration, and we've seen it in wave after wave of immigration in this country, where second generations struggle between their ethnic identity and their American identity. You know, it's, um, I, I love to think about America itself as a perpetually second-generation country. Um, and, and that's true both in the literal sense of immigrants and their children. I am the son of immigrants, and as you say, a lot of what I write about in my, in my book um, is just this, it's not even tension. I think tension overstates it. It's just the the the, the opportunity slash confusion slash um, you know smorgasbord feeling of when do I pick and choose? Uh, when am I forced to uh, to hold on to certain parts of heritage? And what is the difference between heritage on the one hand, that which I've inherited as a matter of norms and values and rituals and mores, and what's the difference between that and on the other hand, identity? Heritage and identity, we often kind of say interchangeably, but they're different things. And what you inherit and what your parents wish that you would sustain in terms of language and culture um, isn't exactly the same as identity, which is what you build in America, what you make and how you compose yourself. Uh, one of the things that may seem like I'm, I'm doing a grammatical quibble, Jeff, is that I never hyphenate the term Chinese-American. I say Chinese space American. And the meaning for me is that American is the noun and Chinese is the adjective. Uh, to hyphenate really suggests something different, which is, you know, to, hyphenation is a, is a form you, you would use when you're talking about interaction, whether positive or negative, between two parties, between the two nations of China and America. So Chinese-American trade or Chinese-American diplomacy or Chinese-American military tension or conflict. Uh, I am not hyphenated in that sense, and I think one of the things that uh, I try to wrestle with in, in my book uh, is just, okay, if Chinese is the adjective, or at least an adjective, uh, what is the content of that adjective? In what ways am I a Chinese? Uh, I can speak proficiently, not fluently. Um, I can cook a few stir-fry dishes. <laughs> uh, but beyond those surface indicia, you know, there's something deeper about my values, about my sense of social context, my sense of relatedness and obligation to others, my sense of, um, of right and ritual, uh, that it's really only that as I've grown older and become a parent myself that I realize how much of my 
background operating system uh, in terms of values was formed by a certain Chinese sensibility of my my father and my mother. So um, I think this kind of exploration um, is uh, again it's perpetually American. We are um, you know we put aside race. Uh, the founding generation uh, is not really uh, what people can relate to. That was a remarkable once-in-a-history kind of thing. But what we can relate to is being the generation that followed the founders, the people who were given an incredible writ of obligation and opportunity. And the question is, are you going to blow it? Right? <laughs> Daniel Webster's generation had to grow up and ask, am I going to blow it? People created this incredible revolution. Am I going yeah. to blow it? And he took it quite seriously, as did that whole generation trying to sustain. And when you are literally second generation, the child of immigrants, you also have a heightened consciousness of whatever my family status is, they've struck, my parents have struggled mightily to come here and to create something new. Am I going to blow it? And uh, that, that's a sense of obligation and, uh, and, again, opportunity that I take seriously. Is it different today, given how interconnected the world is, given both globalization as as a construct, but also communication and the fact that we have this ability to essentially be several places at the same time. To what extent does that mm, change yeah. the experience? That's such a great question, Jeff. I think it's it, it changes it profoundly. Um, and this is true certainly for Chinese Americans, but I think for anybody um, where uh, either as the immigrant or even as the second or third generation down, you can feel a much more continuous sense of connection through media, through travel, through technology, uh, to the homeland, to the news of the homeland, to the current culture of the homeland, to how people are doing in the homeland. And if you compare it to even 50, 60 years ago, you know, my parents emigrated uh, to the United States. They were born in China. They went to Taiwan during the war, and then they came here in the late 50s. And even then, uh, when it took many weeks to actually travel by boat to uh, the United States, when it took uh, you know a fair amount of time for letters to go back and forth and phone calls were expensive, uh, that was a much more severe break for them to make that journey and decide to plant roots here. Uh, whereas today, an immigrant can come here and essentially land and start... Uh, being online with uh, the very people that uh, she or he left uh, behind, and uh, so I think you're right that uh, you know identity therefore uh, becomes much more fluid. There's a much more sustained sense of connection to the place that you've left. Uh, but nonetheless, look, even even in this age of social media and technology. Most of us, most of the time, this is especially true for immigrants, are not spending all day attached to media. Most of us, most of the time, are trying to live a life where we live. And when you think about immigrants today uh, of any ethnicity, whether, um, however connected they may feel to their homeland, uh, the fact of the matter is they begin to have to live a life here, running with this culture, its laws, its norms, its, uh, its values. And they begin to raise children here who are similarly steeped in this place. Uh, and I still think that uh, uh, migration even in this age of, uh, of interconnected global media, um, marks, uh, marks a major break. I mean, I guess the question is, does it make America less of a melting pot in that regard as everybody keeps one foot and is able to keep one foot back in where they came from? You know, yes and no. I think uh, we shouldn't overly 
we, we shouldn't overstate the extent to which the, the melting pot made people forget their ties. Uh, let's consider a, a, an iconic American immigrant group, the Irish, mm-hmm. and think about the ways in which when the Irish started arriving in great numbers in this country, um, A, how many of them would go back to Ireland or go back and forth, and B, how many of them to this day remain quite active in the politics of Ireland or the politics uh, as between Ireland and Northern Ireland and, uh, and, and Britain. Uh, and, and you think about all these ways in which um, you know, even with the limitations of older technologies and older forms of travel, uh, people did keep one foot here and one foot there. Uh, but I think the larger point of the question, the premise of your question, Jeff, is what holds us together now, right? It's a, it's a more centrifugal age. It's an age where it is easier uh, to uh, not feel deeply attached uh, to this place uh, right now. And, you know, this to me as a Chinese-American, I, I take super seriously. I think that, again, what is exceptional in theory about life in the United States, but only in theory, uh, is precisely this, that we do not have uh, a common race, a common ethnicity, a common tribal ritual. The only thing we have holding us together in this country is a creed. Uh, and one of the things that we begin to realize, the more diverse, the more demographically fluid this country becomes, uh, is the importance of that creed and the ways in which over generations we've begun to neglect it. Uh, and that creed, which is baked in part in our founding documents, but baked as well uh, into different aspects of uh, American culture, whether you're talking about, say, the Gettysburg Address or the I Have a Dream speech uh, or Letter from Birmingham Jail or the Seneca Falls Declaration. Th- th- this creed expresses an idea not only of freedom as removal of encumbrance, but as freedom uh, requiring that we now take on responsibility for trying to build something together, even though we don't know each other and even though we may not have anything seemingly in common. Uh, and that is a creed that we, we've got to take anew uh, as our prime directive as Americans, that our diversity, which we often as Americans like to celebrate, um, is worth celebrating only if we make something of it, only if through combined work, through shared action, through encountering one another across these lines of difference, only if we can convert that diversity uh, into something greater. Uh, and, and so for me, as a Chinese-American in this age of China and America, um, I, you know, I, I take this seriously. And, and, for, and one of the things, Jeff, that I think is uh, at least a hopeful uh, reminder about what we have, again, potentially as our advantage, even as China rises and China becomes great, is simply this. America makes Chinese Americans. China does not make American Chinese. China does not want to. China is not interested in it. China does not have any kind of setup for taking people from around the world and integrating them into a new and more expanded and capacious sense of Chineseness. And that's true even if I, someone who's ethnic Chinese, were to try to emigrate to China and put down roots there and spend out my days there, I would never be fully understood as Chinese. Uh, and so I think this is a remarkable advantage, again, in theory. And the question is, what are we going to do not to blow it? And the other part of that is what we need to do to redefine or restate that cultural creed that you talked about earlier. In many ways, as we look at the landscape, you know, popular culture has almost replaced it in some respect as, as kind of a defining and homogenizing force. You're right, Jeff. Uh, I think popular culture is, the, you know, I, I would 
say Americans today feel much more bound together by uh, the Super Bowl, and you can save fifteen percent at this car insurance company, and so on and so <laughs> forth, than they than, than they do by the language of the Fourteenth Amendment or the preamble to the Constitution or or, or what have you. Um, and on the one hand, that's ultimately an uphill battle. Um, it's not easy to displace the the memes and the ideas of pop culture, particularly market culture. Uh, but it is still our responsibility, and that, that starts from schools and uh, you know the K-12 system all the way through adulthood. People forget, you know, I, in my life outside of being an author, I run an organization, Jeff, called Citizen University, and our work is all about trying to revivify a culture of strong and powerful citizenship in the United States, and um, that begins, of course, with civic education in our schools, which we forget was the point of our schools, the point of free compulsory public education in the United States was to make citizens, not to make workers, not to make effective uh, assembly line uh, uh, staff, but to make citizens. And uh, But even outside our school system, it becomes a thing that when you think about how we live in our communities, um, we all have an obligation to reattach, again, not only to the to the language of these these iconic American documents, but more broadly to the set of values that it's not just about you. Values that remind us we're all better off and we're all better off. Values that are about how we weave together a sense of community out of our diversity, and values that are as old as Plymouth uh, Plymouth the Colony. Uh, the, 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 this and and by the way, the thing that I end up writing about in in my book um, is realizing as I go and as I get older and get more engaged in these kinds of questions and issues that the part of me that is moved to search out this thread of American values, the communitarian side of who we are and have always been, and, uh, and, and the part of us that recognize that for all of our lone cowboy imagery, um, no one ever got a barn raised just by rugged individualism. It's always taken Americans working together. And I realized as I was writing this book that... Uh, that part of me that is moved by that strand of Americanness is my Chinese part, is the part of me that is, again, situated in a sense of context and history and mutual obligation and reciprocity. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about that. I celebrate the fact that that little part of my Chinese heritage gets activated in service of trying to make America uh, a stronger social weave. And as you say, that tension that exists between the rugged individualism that is part of our founding mythology and that communitarian instinct, which also has led to so much of the country's success, that the tension between those two things has really been a driving force for so much of our history. It is, and it's a great tension to have. It is the very tension between the Declaration and the Constitution. The Declaration says, basically, don't tread on me. Stop being boss of me. Uh, but the Constitution says, okay, it's not enough simply to throw off tyranny. We actually have to figure out how to work together. We actually can't just be um, a, a, a collection of totally autonomous units that can't do things together, that can't protect ourselves together, that can't prosper together. Uh, and that tension between the rugged individualist and the communitarian um, is not a thing to worry about. It's classically American. The only thing to worry about is when we get out of balance. When we have moments where, you know, most of the times that this country has gotten out of balance, it's gotten out of balance in the direction of too much individualism uh, and too little of a recognition of how we all shape one another and, and oh, what we owe, owe one another. Uh, and I think we're in one of those moments now. 
uh, and again, I think the the rise of Chinese Americans, the emergence of Chinese Americans in a variety of domains, whether it's politics or business or education or culture making, uh, I think is going to help reinforce uh, some of that other strand of Americanness and uh, and move us a bit more back into balance. Eric Liu. His book is A Chinaman's Chance, One Family's Journey in the Chinese-American Dream. It's just out from Public Affairs. Eric, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.